The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Talking to Sharan Ahmad this evening, the chief executive at RecoMed, which bills itself as the fastest growing online healthcare marketplace and booking platform in South Africa. You book appointments with healthcare practitioners in your area. You can do it by phone, by tablet. In the olden days, you'd phone up a doctor and you'd go and see them and they'd then write a letter. And you'd then phone up the specialist and you'd go to the specialist and they'd say, do you have a referral? And you'd hand over your referral and then they'd charge you more money. Um, things are changing in the world of, uh, in the digital world. We'll get on to recommend in just a moment, Sharon Amod. Um, but you set up quite a few businesses. I mean, I think this one is your third, at least the third that is disclosed. I'm curious as to how you got to this particular point. Tell me about, I mean, and you've named them also sorts of weird and wonderful things. The first one was called Personera. What was Personera about? Thank you so much for having me on, Bruce. Personera was actually short for what I thought could mean the personalization era. And the the story was, I was a a young computer science graduate. Uh, I did my computer science and electrical engineering at UCT all the way back now in 2007. And Facebook had just released their API allowing developers to build apps on their platform. So my idea at the time was, what if we could build a personalized type of merchandise, photo books, calendars, greeting cards, that that were physically printed, but created through a Facebook app with a click of a button. And it turned out this was a world first idea, which we patented and we were covered on on TechCrunch the first day we launched in 2009. And I found myself very young, sort of at the age of 22, uh, with venture capital and uh, huge dreams and ambitions. And I went to Silicon Valley. And then by 24, I was section 189 and retrenching stuff and, you know, bleeding, uh, coffee, <laughs> sweating blood and, you know, really going through the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurship at a young age. And eventually in 2013, we managed to sell that business to one of our U.S. customers uh, where the company had ended up being based. And, and I think the lesson from that was a, a niche business can really flourish in the U.S., but that didn't really work in South Africa. And that kind of informed my experience to start recommending a massive sector like healthcare, which everybody needs, uh, in a market like South Africa where you can actually get to millions of people. Um, yeah, but it's it's interesting. I mean, the the evolution of ideas, isn't it? I mean, the uh, this idea of person error, this became this uh, really quite complicated reseller of uh, Xerox products and all of that sort of stuff. How long is, is that business still going, or did you manage to exit it with a bit of money in your pocket? So, so I exited it, and I learned a, an amazing lesson at the time because I actually exited for one hundred percent stock. Um, and uh, those of us following South African business and, and Stein of Techie Town uh, debacles have, have learned what can happen there. But nonetheless, we, we, I sold for old stock and in hindsight, probably should have sold for old cash at the time. Uh, but we had high hopes in the US. Uh, the company went on for another four years or five years uh, before eventually shutting down and being absorbed by the parent group. At the time that I left, it was powering the personalized merchandise fundraising platform for the Girl Scouts of America across 40,000 schools in the United States. So it was certainly a strange journey and a lot of fun. No, no, absolutely. You can have a lot of fun, but I mean, it's devastating because you get left with absolutely nothing for all of your effort. Yes, you drew a salary. Yes, you got paid. I I, I, uh, squeezed out cents on the dollar. And for a young man of 27, which was the age I was at the time, uh, I thought I'd done very well. And it was, you know, so there were were great lessons in mind. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, some capital, but I was hungry. For, I had to be hungry for more. And um, were you based in the United States at that point? Did you go and did you go and settle there for a bit? 
Yes, I was in the U.S. for three years, uh, settled, based out of New York City, and, um, you know, lived for six months in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and then two and a half years in, in New York City. And it was a, it was a wonderful and, and fascinating education. I learned a lot I mean, from the culture. Just describe it. Describe it to me because, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who go into places like New York and, and New York City in particular has got a voracious appetite for chewing up bright young things and spitting them onto the filthy sidewalks and getting washing them down the gutters. I don't mean to over-exaggerate, but the kind of thing, the idea is you get to New York, you've got six months because you can't afford to stay in New York for six months unless your idea is working. Um, did you Did you find it quite ferocious? I did. And in fact, at the time when I moved there, I was, I was 24 years old, just about. And my company had not done well. That's why I'd moved there, because I'd, I'd come from South Africa with this brilliant, innovative idea that wasn't working in my home market. And I took it to America in desperation to save the company. So I actually remember I, I went on a zero salary at the time and, and my shareholders were happy with that. My co-founder left and took a retrenchment package and I liquidated all my life savings. And I said, this is it. It was a one-way ticket and it was make or break. And it was after that that I formed the Xerox and Facebook partnerships and the company kind of uh, revitalized and became somewhat successful thereafter. But uh, so I felt every bit of the pain that you speak. And, um, you know, you know, we're in a pond and, and that's truly an ocean and uh, you drown, you swim or you drown and you probably do a little bit of both. I mean, so you must look at the likes of Elon Musk and uh, Rulof Buerta and others who have gone into the United States and have made it really, really big um, w- um, w- with a degree of awe, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And what's fascinating is, um, well, at least Rulof Buerta uh, seems to still have a soft spot for South Africans. You know, he did a lovely hour-long phone call with me and listened to where we are, were, and was very patient. And I was, I was just thoroughly um, That's nice. humbled and impressed that he would do that to a, a, a young entrepreneur with really you know, nothing uh, that he should have been interested in at the time. And, and of course, that intro was made by another South African who'd moved over uh, and was living there. So you know, that's the power of the South African expat network, and they're willing to help. Um, I think you know, we're still in the first innings of South Africans doing great things in the United States. Uh, there's certainly going to be more and more to come. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I mean, did it did it cool your ardor? Did it uh, did it sort of teach you some lessons? You go, okay, fine, that's big league. I don't want to play there again. Or it's a case of let's go home, let's build something else, and let's go back again. Um, a little bit like uh, the what, what is he? The, the Dark Knight in Monty Python who gets his arms and legs and everything chopped off, and he doesn't give up. Well, actually. After selling, I, I was feeling a little bit big for my boots. And I thought, you know, with the life experiences that we had, the capital that we had, the ability really to build world-class technology product, to fundraise at a world-class level, and to just execute at the speed and, and intensity you need to execute. I said, sure, you know, we, we could really do something special in an unexplored market like Africa. And, and that was the thinking. And at the time, I partnered with a gentleman who was an MD for Rocket Internet, a global accelerator based out of Germany. And we were very pumped up. So we came back and the second business we started was called Spring Lab. Spring Lab uh, was designed to be an accelerator where we really believed in our hearts at the time that we could start, you know, five billion rand companies in five years kind of thing. And we were young and hungry and we had big dreams. And that, so that was, it, it was thinking that we could conquer in, in uh 
in green pastures, I would say, um, having faced the intensity of competition in the US and also there were some visa things and all of that. Um, quickly did I realize after beginning Spring Lab that finding top class founder talent is, is no easy thing in South Africa. And I ended up starting Recommit inside of this entity called Spring Lab. And, and within about a year and a half, I, I had this massive realization that I hated being an investor and, and you know, not having control over other companies and having stakes and sort of having to split my time over five or six projects. So I, I collapsed Spring Lab into a holding and investment company, uh, took silent stakes in a few businesses and then piled everything into Recommend where I became uh, the CEO and, and remained to this day. We're going to talk about Recommend in just a moment. Uh, Sharon Amut, wonderful and fascinating and for many people, a, a traumatic um, a couple of years. Certainly that experience in the United States would break many people who don't have his resolve, but he does have resolve. He's on to business number three. We'll learn more about that in a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. There was a time where Prime Media, when it was a listed company, was buying anything that wasn't nailed down securely enough. And one of the businesses that was bought was a, a, a golf booking engine. And I looked at this thing and I thought to myself, you know, people's relationship with their, with their golf course is very intimate and very personal. And, you know, perhaps outsiders might try and book, but members need to get priority. And, oh, my goodness me, it's a minefield. But what Recommend does is it allows you to book Medical appointments. How does this one work? Uh, Sharon Amod is the chief executive at Recommend. We've been um, listening to his exciting tale of boom and bust in the United States and the disappointment of business number two. Talk to me about business number three. Recommend is an online healthcare booking platform, much like booking.com for healthcare. It's a place where people can log on to recommend.co.za search for any kind of doctor, dentist, physiotherapist, pharmacy clinic. There's about 3,000 providers that they can choose from and make a booking 24-7. About 70% of our bookings happen after hours when these places are closed and can't even take a phone call. We power about 200,000 bookings a month, so you've certainly got some sure. scale and popularity among a consumer audience. Now, a typical user, and when I say typical, more than 50% of our users are women between 25 and, and 34 years old, so the kind of young mother demographic that's uh, driving a lot of healthcare decisions in the home. You know, um, we, we, nobody wonders why we don't uh, go to a travel agent to book flights and hotels anymore. And we kind of have always taken for granted that, you know, we've got to sit on the phone or sit in the queue for healthcare. And really what we found is this new generation doesn't want to invest the three minutes, the two minutes, the five minutes to do that. They, they want instantaneous gratification and that's what we give them um and again particularly children children have got this un, unbelievable knack of starting to get sick at about two o'clock on a saturday afternoon or at midnight on any given day um and the, the you, know, you bring down the temperature and you do all of those sorts of things and what you want is the assurance that you're going to get a, a, a doctor's appointment the moment you can um, uh, first thing in the morning. And I suppose from that perspective, um, it, it gives a huge amount of assurance. How do you make money um, in terms of these 200 bookings that are processed through your platform? Yeah, the 200,000. In fact, to your point about uh, uh, a sick child in the morning, 50% of all our bookings, that's, you know, over 100,000 bookings a month are happening um, within 24 hours of the patient making the booking. So they not only do they want to be have the certainty of when they get the booking, they probably want it tomorrow morning. 
And and that's, you know, the the sweet spot that we fill. Of course, we make it easy for people who've moved or traveled to find a doctor in the area as well if they don't have an existing provider. We make money very simply. We charge nothing to doctors and providers, clinics and uh, doc medical groups uh, for being on our platform. It's free to join and, and become part of it. And we charge them for patients and particularly new patients that we deliver to their practice. So it's a very risk-free uh, gambit for them. They they sign up and uh, they pay per the number of patients booked. And when we look at your, this is your third business, um, the, the the certainly the, the business of scale. So many people um, talk about South Africa as being a really unforgiving place where, like Europe, um, you're not encouraged to fail. You're not sort of treated with any kind of respect if you, if the businesses you create don't work out. The United States seems to have a fundamentally different approach. How have you been greeted as, as, as a third-time uh, entrepreneur on this particular front? Yeah, unfortunately, Bruce, I have to agree with, with everything you've said. I, I don't think um, being a second or third boss entrepreneur in South Africa carries any more, um, any more good treatment of the entrepreneur than someone starting out for the first time. Uh, whereas in the U.S., in uh, more mature markets, the UK, Sweden, Australia, I think that has been become very, very different. Certainly, when I think to colleagues and friends of mine, it truly is a concept offshore of failing forward where, uh, you know, I've ne- my businesses always have uh, netted out positively in the end and had some success and you know, there's a bit of a track record and that's how I've able to continue to, to raise funds and, and uh, have shareholders that believe in, in me and the company. But really, when I think to the US, I've got friends who've been in Y Combinator and flat out lost every cent of capital they've raised. And then the same investors back them for the next round. So failing forward is a real phenomenon there because uh, the market believes in the skill and the will of the entrepreneur, but just understands the numbers that 90 plus percent of companies are going to fail. We have a long way to catch up. And um, I would say from when I started, uh, things over the last 15 years, things have got a little bit better, but we have a huge way to go in terms of uh, environment mindset around entrepreneurship. What gives you the resilience to continue? Because a lot of people would give up, go and look for a job. Yeah, resilience and grit is really the, the secret factor. I think um, when evaluating business partners or looking to invest in an entrepreneur, the, the, the trifecta of things you're looking for is really ability and intelligence, uh, ethics and values, and those two are quite easy to test for very early on. But the thing you cannot test for is resilience because people get tired after two to three years. And, and it's just a very hard test to run early on. And, and often it's, we, don't, we don't even know it's inside us until we've been tested. Um, a lot's been written on the topic. I just found for me, the thought of failing was far scarier uh, than the thought of pressing on and succeeding. And you know, I just keep thinking of sort of what Winston Churchill, uh, what he said, when you find yourself going through hell, keep going. And that's kind of my <laughs> mantra. And eventually, you know, it, is the, it is the unwillingness to fail and the, the not knowing how to lose. And to some, and then to a large extent, the boneheaded, stupid confidence of the entrepreneur that they can find a path. And that's ultimately what leads to success. And I think that's true every single time. Uh, I don't know where it comes from, but I think a lot of people have it. And, um, and it's a path worth walking. Uh, why not, why not throw, it all, uh, throw it all away and uh, take something cushier? I think deep down, um, 
we are called to, to prove what's inside ourselves and see if we can uh, change the world. And uh, it's worth trying. Uh, do you read biographies? I mean, what, what motivates you? Where do you get your ideas from? Where do you get your, where do you build that grit from? Yes, I think, um, you know, if I could do anything, you know, this is a funny thing. If they, they often, I often ask myself if uh, a time traveler popped over and popped in front of my house and offered me a time machine and said, look, I'll, I'll send you back in time 20 years. There is absolutely no way I would live my life the same way, uh, which partially answers your question. But that is because, you know, when I was uh, 15 to 21, I was immersed in these tech biographies and Silicon Valley stories and tales. And that was really my education. And um, that's what got me uh, obsessed with this type of journey. Um, I, I love tech from a young age, from sort of six, seven, programming you know, at the age of nine. So I think it was a natural path, but that obsession certainly started young. And, um, when but I did, think those, did those books create a false impression? Were they deliberately deceptive? Or did you simply read them with rose-tinted spectacles on and sort of like you want to believe that this is the journey, so you're going to pursue it come hell or high water and you get motivated by the stories of those who succeed. Those who fail don't write books about their failures. Nobody wants to publish those. I think, I think it's good for a young person to read them because when you're young, you take, you take the biggest swings out of um, noble naivety. And certainly when I, when I look at the goals I had when I was 21, I've achieved about 75% of them. So things that really I thought would have been out of reach, um, you know, meeting Mark Zuckerberg, you know, whatever it was, uh, those things happened. And, and that was life-changing. And, and it remains to this day of um, sort of building fast-growing businesses, et cetera, with, with millions of, of customers. Now, on the flip side, as an adult and as a more mature 35-year-old, I am well aware that we, we write about the outliers, not about, about the mean or the norm. And certainly, therefore, trying to pattern yourself after an outlier is a fool's errand. But it's still inspiring and fun. Yeah, absolutely. What's the best biography you've ever read, best business book you've ever read? You know, the best one is Andre Agassi Open, and I'll tell you why. So I, I, it's not a, it's not a business book, yeah. but it's because of two things. The one is... <laughs> it's very personal. He said he starts the book saying the tennis court is the loneliest place in the world. You're there all on your own. Your family can't help you. Your coach can't help you. It's the loneliest place in the world. And often when you're running a business, when you're an entrepreneur, you feel the same way. And then he also writes about the fact that when he played his last match when he was 35 and his body was just falling apart and he was grinding it out day after day. And, and there's days when I wake up and feel the same, but uh, that's being facetious. But I really connected with that, uh, with the philosophy of Agassi in that book. Um, if I had to think, uh, if I had to think, uh, pure pure business books. No, no, um, I like the Agassi one. I don't want to hear about a business book. That is better than a business book. 